Okay, praise the Lord. Can I ask everybody to open up their Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. 1 Samuel, chapter 21. Our manner for this morning is the whole of chapter 21 and the first two verses of chapter 22. We're doing 1 Samuel, chapter 21, verses uh, from verse 1 to 1 Samuel, chapter 22, verse 2. As you look and find that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, I pray for the unction and the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon me that the words that come forth from my mouth might be spirit and life to all that are here this morning. I pray that, Lord, you would uh, open up our ears to be able to hear what your Spirit is saying to us. May the words of man fall to the ground, but may the words from heaven be preserved within our minds, within our hearts, and within our spirits, that they would bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, to the glory of his name. Amen. Okay, so last time we saw that David and Jonathan had cut a covenant together, where David promised to preserve the life of Jonathan and his family in the future, but where Jonathan promised to preserve the life of David in the present. Now to this end, Jonathan interceded on David's behalf with his father, King Saul, to determine whether David's life was truly under threat. And... Jonathan's audience with his father, King Saul, revealed to him without doubt Saul's murderous intent towards David. King Saul wanted to kill David. So Jonathan bid David to make haste, hurry, do not delay. And the last line of 1 Samuel chapter 20 tells us David arose and departed. He is now a man on the run, in fear for his life. He is God's fugitive. And that's what I've called this, this morning's talk, God's fugitive. Now, on a human level, David is running from King Saul, and David is facing hardship on a daily basis, and David is forced to face feelings of fear and distress and anger and pain continuously, day after day. But on a spiritual level, David is being tested and purified by God through the trials he is facing. David is being prepared and equipped for the service he will render God as the future king of Israel. In other words, David is being broken. Before God brings somebody into full service, he breaks that person, he equips them for that role. And so this is David's wilderness. And one of the works God performs during a wilderness experience is he breaks your reliance upon man and he builds your reliance upon him. And this is what God is doing in this chapter. He is breaking David's reliance upon man and building his reliance upon God. And this type of work doesn't happen overnight. You don't just click your fingers and suddenly you're transformed. It takes time. And you have to battle through pain and failure, disappointment and defeat. And it, and it starts by first, you first run to man in the midst of your pain and your suffering, only to find that that man fails you. And then it continues by you running to another man, only to find that that person fails you and lets you down. And only when you've got nowhere else to run, nowhere else to hide, do you finally turn to God and you learn to develop that reliance upon him. And so in verses 1 to 9, 
we're going to see that David runs first to Ahimelech, the priest. And then, verses 10 to 15, we're going to see that David then runs to Achish, king of Gath. But then, there in Gath, we're going to see that God finally, sorry, David finally runs to God. And then the first two verses of chapter 22 are absolutely beautiful. Because only after he has been broken and dealt with by God do people then start running to David. And I've got a problem with my notes. Hang on a second. Here we go. Okay, so let's read verses 1 to 9 and get that first section where David runs to Ahimelech. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business, and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you, or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever you can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the, in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. So David was God's fugitive. And uh, he, was, he was God's fugitive for between 10 and 15 years. We don't exactly know the, the exact period of time that he was on the run. Um, but uh, he could have easily been on the run for some time before he gets to Nob. I mean, if you read chapter 20 and 21, it feels like he leaves Jonathan and the first thing he does is he goes to Nob. But there could have been a big gap between chapter 20 and chapter 21. We don't know. Yet, because this is a key event during David's life, it's the next recorded event in David's life, uh, while preceding events are omitted. And Ahimelech the priest says, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Which tells us that David approached this priest by himself, and that Ahimelech assumes that no one is with him. However, I've got to say that I'm persuaded that David is not alone, but that already a number of men have started to gather to his side. Of course, that number will swell to uh, 400 men at the beginning of chapter 22. But the reason I believe that David has men already with him is twofold. First of all, David st states that he has men with him in verse 2. 
although granted he could be telling a lie, he's certainly telling lies about other things. But when Jesus references this account in Luke chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, Jesus states that he had people with him. Let me just read Luke 6, verses 3 to 4 to you. Have you not read this, says Jesus, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him. So twice there Jesus says there were others with him. So just to settle that. Nevertheless, David approaches Ahimelech by himself. And Ahimelech is afraid when he meets David. Why is Ahimelech afraid? Well, there's two possible reasons. The first possible reason is if Ahimelech was ignorant of David falling out of favour with King Saul, then David's arrival was not only unexpected, but the king's son-in-law arrived without entourage or army? That's unprecedented. What does this mean? This is both unusual and unexpected. And that could have brought fear to Ahimelech. The other possibility is that if Ahimelech was aware of David falling out of favour with King Saul, to receive an outlaw came at high risk. And uh, what would be the repercussions of him aiding and abetting uh, the enemy of the king? I don't know for certain which is true. I kind of favour the first argument, but uh, as Ahimelech later argues in defence to King Saul, your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. Anyway, there is fear inside of Ahimelech. And so David seeks to assuage the, the priest's fear with a ruse. Verse 2. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Okay, forgive me, I'm having problems with my notes this morning. Okay, so Nob is the site of the tabernacle of God. Now, it was formerly uh, situated where? Anybody remember? Where was the tabernacle beforehand? Shiloh, thank you. But Shiloh had been attacked and destroyed by the Philistines, and as a consequence, the ark had moved to Kiriath-Jerim, but the tabernacle had moved to Nob. So there's a split in the worship of God. There's a disunity there in the worship of God, a disruption. But notice there's also a split in the leadership of Israel, a division there, because you've got the old king Saul there, and you've got the new king, or the king-to-be, David there. So there's a split in the leadership, and a disruption in the leadership of Israel, and there's a split and a disruption in the worship. But this disruption, this split, will be resolved when David ascends to the throne, because he'll bring both the ark and the tabernacle together once more in Jerusalem. David will bring unity. Now, so David runs to the tabernacle to Ahimelech, and I want to say David's instincts, instincts are right, but David's methods are wrong. That David's instincts are that he runs to the house of God, but his methods are wrong because he lies to escape detection. But there is nothing in the text to suggest that David is running to the tabernacle or indeed to God. In fact, what it says there is uh, in verse 1, Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. 
He's running to Ahimelech. He's running to a man. And that's what we do when we're in distress, when we're struggling. We run to other men, to other women, to other people to help us. And that's what David is doing. He's running to man. And if David was running to God, would he be lying? You wouldn't be lying if you're running to God. You see, if we're honest, David is backslidden at this moment in time. He's not in a right place with God. And this kind of troubles us because David, this great man of God, this man after, with a heart after God, we start to see his weakness. Um, we start to see his clay feet, as it were. How can the man of God, after God's own heart lie so readily and easily? Well, you see, God had found in David a man who was rightly hearted, but who was not rightly ready for the role of king. He had a right heart before God, but he wasn't rightly prepared for the role of king. And so this entire period of time David spends in exile, running from King Saul, is a training ground for God to prepare David for that role of king. His heart was in the right place, but he was not properly prepared. And at this point in time, David is relying upon himself and his own strength to survive, to get himself out of trouble. And as I said, he is backslidden. And if we're honest, when we faced affliction, when we face trial, our first instinct, our knee-jerk reaction, is to use whatever methods we can to lay our hands, uh, lay our hands on to get ourselves out of the situation we're in. When we find ourselves in a trial, we do whatever we can, whatever methods we can employ to get ourselves out of trouble. And that's exactly what David is doing here. He's doing whatever comes to his mind, whatever he can to get out of this situation. He's operating in the flesh. And it takes time. It takes time to trust in God in the midst of trial. And often God will allow us to lean our own strength, methods and means so that we can only see them fall and fail us, so that we see them to be the sinking sand they truly are. And once all our own methods and means prove to be useless, only then do we truly lean upon the Lord. Only then do we find that the everlasting arms of our Saviour uh, never fail us. Only then do we find that he is faithful. So David presents himself as special agent, son of Jesse, on his majesty's secret service. You can tell he's little more than a teenager with a story like that, that he's spinning to Ahimelech. I'm on a secret mission for the king. And suspicion, as suspicious as he may be, Ahimelech seems to buy it. And so bluntly put, David lies. And like many people, he probably thinks telling lie is acceptable in extreme circumstances. I was in a tough spot. The only way I could see myself out of it is lying. That surely must make it okay. However, lying is a sin and it is not acceptable to God, regardless of your circumstance. And this is actually a vice within David that he would have to later on confess and repent of. In Psalm 119, which I believe David wrote, in verse 29, he says this, Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. Later on, David repents of lying. 
Anyway, once David has allayed Ahimelech's concerns, he, he, uh, he makes two requests. He requests bread and he requests a weapon. And David and his men are hungry and ask for five loaves of bread. But alas, there is no common bread to sustain David. There is only the holy bread that is found in the tabernacle. Now, in the tabernacle, one of the furnishings um, is uh, the table of showbread. It's a small wooden uh, table overlaid with gold. And Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9, tells us that on this table was laid 12 loaves of bread. Each loaf represented a tribe of Israel, and these, these, uh, these 12 loaves were laid out in two rows of six. They were freshly baked every week and replaced every Sabbath. And the old loaves were to be eaten by the priests, the Levites only, in the holy place. That's what Leviticus 24 tells us. And as I read through this account, and as I read about Ahimelech taking them from the holy place, giving them David to, to David for his men to eat, I can't see that it's right according to the Levitical law. The loaves which are holy, the loaves that were to be eaten by the Levites only, were offered to David and his men. Now maybe Ahimelech operated in ignorance of the law, Maybe Ahimelech operated in fear of David. Maybe Ahimelech operated in compassion for David. But whatever the reason, God, God's hand was at work in this situation. So Ahimelech offers David and his men the showbread, um, but he sets a caveat. The men need to be considered sanctified by virtue of not sleeping with a woman for three days. And David assures the priests that this condition has been met. So David has his physical needs taken care of by this showbread. But God is concerned with David's spiritual needs, not just his physical needs. Just as God is concerned about your spiritual needs as well. And it's no accident that no common bread is available. I mean, what are the chances that no regular bread is actually available? Everybody has bread in their larder, but not these priests that know. All they've got is showbread. And so David has to rely upon showbread for sustenance. And I believe the Lord permitted this because he's pursuing David. Even though David is backslidden, God is pursuing him, trying to draw him back to himself, showing them that he will sustain him through this bread. He will provide for him. He will save him. That he need not rely upon himself. After all, did you not know that showbread is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus said in John 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And in this statement, Jesus is offering himself as our showbread to sustain us. He will not only sustain us, he will provide for us and he will save us. And he's saying the same thing to David here. Come to me, I will sustain you, I will provide for you, I will save you. And if you are backslidden here this morning, if you're not in the right place with God, I want you to know this, that God is pursuing you. He will not leave you in that backslidden state. God loves you. God loves you and wants, you to draw, wants to draw you back 
to himself, to lean upon him and not lean upon yourselves. Now, in verse 7, we have a brief intersection to our account where we're introduced to a man called Doeg. Let's reread verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Why are we introduced to Doeg here? He doesn't seem to play much of a role. Well, let me tell you, he will play a more significant role later on in 1 Samuel chapter 22. So you're going to have to wait till next time to get the payoff with this guy, Doeg. But let me tell you this, Doeg is a worm. He's a piece of filth. Um, He's a nasty piece of work, to be quite honest with you. And he's climbing the greasy pole of King Saul's court. Here we see he's referred to as being of the servants of Saul. And he's a herdsman in charge of sheep. When we meet him later on in chapter 22, he's described as over the servants of Saul. So now he's in charge of men. So his sliminess works as he climbs up in Saul's um, echelons of power. And how does he rise in position? By being a weasel. By sucking up to Saul. And we'll see that more clearly next time. But let me tell you this, he has no regard for the things of God. He has no regard for the servants of God. His only interest is in what serves his own interests. But he's watching. He's watching and he sees David request bread. And he will see David ask for weapons too. And like the weasel that he is, he'll run back to Saul and tell him about what David did. What Doeg also does is he tells something about Saul. You see, Doeg is something of a mercenary, operating with selfish intent. And Doeg is also an Edomite. He comes from the land of Edom, and that nation is opposed to Israel and their God. And that Saul has resorted to enlist a man of such bad character only serves to reflect Saul's own bad character himself. You see, Doeg is a mirror of Saul. Saul is also a man operating with selfish intent. Saul is also a man operating in opposition to God. They're suitable bedfellows, if you like. Now, we'll come back to Doeg next time, and Doeg will come back to haunt David too. Let's just move on to verses 8 and 9 again. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me. So lying again. Because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, if you will take it. For there is no other like that except that one here. And David said, Oh, there is none like it. Give it to me. So food, David needs not only food, but he needs a weapon too. And he continues to lie to say, oh, I was in a hurry and I forgot my sword. Now this should be a red flag to Himelech. David is a commander of the armies of Saul, or certainly he was. And would a commander forget his sword? No, he would not. Yet just as uh, God has met David in his first deception by providing showbed, so God meets David in his second deception by providing a sword. But not just any sword. This is the sword of Goliath, no less. And David recognises the sword sword to be exemplary, and immediately he wants it. 
He must be chuffed to pieces. He came to know today I've got bread and I've got the first class sword. This was a definite result. But in this provision, again, God is calling David to come back to him. Because as Ahimelech states, this is the sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah. This, this, is, this is God speaking through Ahimelech. You've all heard God speak to you through another person. This is God speaking to David through Ahimelech, calling his mind back to when God fought for David. When God, David's reliance was on the Lord and not on himself. When David did not have five loaves, but he had five stones. When David did not need a sword because he had his sling and more importantly, he had God on his side. You see, David is relying upon himself and his own ingenuity, but David is calling to him. Remember back to that time when you didn't need these things, you just needed me. Come back to me. You need your reliance upon me, not upon man. And when we're in the midst of trial, we don't need the physical resources of life to get us through. We need the spiritual resources of God to get us through. We don't need a physical sword, we need the sword of the Spirit. Do you know what the sword of the Spirit is? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is the Bible. It is Holy Scriptures. And let me tell you, one word from the sword of the Spirit will slice through your struggles and your circumstances, and it will speak to your soul and your spirit. It will speak comfort. It will give you perspective. It will give you unknown sustenance to be able to face that trial and to be able to move forward instead of being crushed by whatever it is you're dealing with. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the word of God that sustains you. And we need to learn reliance upon God and we need to learn reliance upon his word that we don't need the resources of man to see us through difficult situations. We need, to, we need the resources of God. We need spiritual resources to get ourselves through difficult situations. And this is what God is trying to do with David. Call him back to himself. Call him out of his backslidden state and say, all you need is Jesus. All you need is me. Anyway, he's fled to Ahimelech. God has tried to reach out to him. He hasn't heard the voice of God, so where does he go to next? He runs to another man, a man called Achish. Let's read verses 10 to 15. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did not they sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behaviour before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman, that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David is not in the right place with God, as we've already established. And when our heart and mind is not on the things of God, but is focused upon ourselves, Oftentimes, our heart and our mind can misinterpret things and take us in the wrong direction. And it seems as if this sword of Goliath didn't propel David towards God, 
but triggered the memory of Goliath, and that Goliath came from Gath. David is operating in fear, fleeing from Saul, and he's thinking, where can I go to escape this, this madman Saul who's seeking my life? Where will I go that Saul will not go? I know, I'll go to Gath. No one will get me there. And so David runs to a man for the second time, Ahimelech Achish. Actually, Achish is the fourth man that David has run to, because David first ran to Samuel, then he ran to Jonathan, then he ran to Ahimelech, now he's running to Achish. He's going from man to man to man. The one person he's not running to is God. He's still running from God effectively. And when you reject the counsel of God, do you know what happens? When you reject the counsel of God, you become stupid. And what David is doing here is stupid because he's taking himself into further trouble. He's entering enemy territory. But you know what? God is with David in his folly. God is with David in that place of danger. And God does not abandon his servant. Praise the Lord. Who here has ever ignored the word of Lord in your life? Anybody? Thank you for your honesty this morning. <laughs> Who here has ever been stupid and put themselves in danger? Who here can testify that God doesn't abandon you even when you walk away from him? Praise God. God doesn't abandon you even when you walk away from you, him. He pursues you. He stays with you. And here in Gath, here in the, of, in the belly of enemy territory, David will come to his senses and David will cry out to God. In 1 Samuel uh, verses 21, verses 10 to 11, we read, Then David arose, fled that day before Saul, went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did, not, did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Felicia was divided, divided into uh, five territories, and um, over each territory there were five cities. So there was a territory, one, one city per territory. And in that city there was a lord. So there were five territories, five cities and five lords. And over the territory of Gath um, and the city of Gath um, was the lord Achish. He was the one who ruled that area. And I want you to note here that David is running to a man again. I just want you to be very clear about that. Verse 10, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. He didn't go to Gath, he went to Achish, the king of Gath. He's running to a man. And so the servants of Achish would have become familiar with David because David goes to the man himself. And I don't know what David is thinking at this point. Um, Maybe he's thinking, well, when I killed Goliath, I was a little bit younger, I was a little bit smaller, maybe my hair was a little bit shorter, and uh, I had freckles, but now I'm older, I'm a, I'm a man, and I've got long hair and I've got a beard. He's not going to recognise me. And I kind of wonder what happened when he was in Gath. Did David go unnoticed for a while? Did he live there quite happily for a couple of months? Or was he spotted quite quickly? I don't know. But you can imagine... The people there in uh, Gath thinking, well, this guy's he's more Jewish than Philistine. But you know what? He looks familiar. <sighs> I'm sure I've seen him somewhere before. And then the penny drops. 
That's David, isn't it? Isn't he the one with that hit single in the charts that everyone sings about? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I hate that song. Can't get out of my head. At which point David is cursing that number one single as well. And thus he's arrested and brought before Achish. And in David's uh, discovery by the servants of Achish, God's divine hand can be seen once again because they say, is this not David, king of the land? Is this not David, king of the land? And you know what? In your sinful, backslidden state, when you have distanced yourself from all your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't go along to church, and God still has his servants from outside of his flock that he uses. And strange as it may seem, God can even speak to you through the voice of your enemy. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? But the Spirit of God whispers to David, Did you hear that, David? They called you the king of the land. You're called to be a king, David. You're my anointed, David. I'm still here, David. And this time, David hears the voice of God. Hallelujah. And no matter how far you have gone from God, God is only a breath away, calling you to come back to him. And David wrote of his experience of, call, of God calling him back in Psalm 139. And we're going to be doing some detour into Psalms just for a little bit, but Psalm 139. We read there in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you but the night shines as the day and the darkness and the light are both alike you. David knew firsthand that no matter how high, far he fled from the Lord, the Lord was always there, just a breath away. And that's the same for you too. No matter how far you flee, the Lord is always just a breath away. And so in verse 12, again, back in Samuel 21, we read, Now David took these words to heart. What words? The words of the servants of, the ser servants of King Achish. He took these words to heart. And what was the effect of him taking these words to heart? And was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. As David took the words of the servants of Achish to heart, and I'm persuaded again that they are the words of God, it's as if soul, David's soul is now not only awoken to God, but it's almost as if he's woken to the reality of the situation that he finds himself in. Oh no. I'm in enemy territory. What am I doing here in the court of Achish? And fear sets in. And David wrote of his arrest by the servants of, of Achish in Psalm 56. So let's go back to the Psalms in Psalm 56, because it tells us something more of what's going on here and proves what I'm saying. You might think I'm just speculating about what, what's happening here, but Psalm but we've got the testimony of David here in Psalm 56. It says, To the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands, a miktam of David, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. 
And what does David say? Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O, uh, o Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All the day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape my iniquity in anger? Cast down the peoples, of God, the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is with me is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows are made to you, are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? And this tells us where David's heart is at this time. He recognised that God has called out to him and he's responding in faith. He's crying out to the Lord for deliverance. He's crying out to the Lord from the midst of fear here in uh, Psalm 56. And then carrying on in uh, 1 Samuel 21, we read, Then he changed his behaviour before them, pretended madness, and so on and so forth. He pretends madness. And is this David operating in his own wisdom again? forging a plan of his own reliance to escape? Do you know what? I believe not. I believe this is David acting with divine wisdom after he cried out to God. He has responded to the voice of the Spirit, he's cried out to God for deliverance, and God has given him just this insight. If he acts like a madman, God will be able to deliver him from this situation. So he responds in faith, God wakes him up to the reality of his circumstances. David cries out to the Lord, the Lord delivers him. But that deliverance comes not only at the cost of being humble, because when we come back to God, it always requires humble hum humility, but it requires David becoming debased. He's become debased here as he acts like a madman. But let me tell you, when you come back to God after you have been backslidden, it's always a difficult thing isn't it? It's always a difficult thing to come back to God after you have walked for a season as a backslidden Christian. And it's always a humbling thing because you need to confess your sin. But when you confess the depths of depravity to which you have fallen, it can be a debasing thing here. And there is something about this debasement of David which is a further breaking of his character and a humbling of him before God. You know, we have a further testimony from David about his return to God in Psalm 34. So let's go to Psalm 34 and have a look at that. Psalm 34, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. And what does David say? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exhort his name together. Does he sound like a man out of relationship with God there as he's feigning madness? He doesn't at all. He sounds right as if he's in the heart of the will of God. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his all his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. He's already recognised that he's been speaking deceit before the Lord. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. You know, he is the righteous man at this point because he's cried out to the Lord, he's put his faith in the Lord, and the Lord delivers him out of his troubles. But he also says the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. God is breaking him in this situation through this disbasement. As David comes to his senses, he acts like he has lost his senses. And as I said, this is a further breaking of his character. And Psalm 34 tells us David stops running to man and he starts running to God. He stops running to man and he starts running to God and things start to change for David. So let's look at these last two verses for this morning. Uh, Psalm 20, not Psalm 22, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 22. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was in discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Um, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So he leaves Gath, goes to this cave of Adullam, and there is some uncertainty as to the etymology, uh, etymological root of the word Adullam. There are two possible roots. One says that it means justice of the people. The other root says that it means refuge. I believe it means refuge. That's my conviction. Because there in the cave of Adullam, David didn't take refuge just from his enemy. David made God his refuge. He retreated into God. David runs further after God there in the cave. I'm going to go to the Psalms again. I know it's a lot of scripture, but it's important. Psalm 142. And uh, it says there at the beginning, a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. What does David do when he's in this cave of Adullam? I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path in the way in which I walk. They have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. No one who acknowledges me. 
He'd run to all these men and no one was acknowledging him. No one was helping him. Refuge has failed me. He'd run to all these people and they hadn't proved to be a sufficient refuge for him. But then what does it say? Verse 5. I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are strong, stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. Your righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. David has made God his refuge. God has, David has put his confidence in him. And isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? Um, you can also read in your own time Psalm 57, which further, which is also written in the cave of Adullam, where David cries out to the Lord and make God his refuge at this time. But here in verses 1 and 2, um, it says, So when his brothers and all his father's household heard it, they went down there to him. And isn't this wonderful? And for ages, for ages, David has been running to man, but no man has brought him the comfort and refuge he has sought. But the moment David runs to God and makes him his comfort and his refuge, God causes people to run to him. And the first people that come to him are his brothers. Do you remember his brothers? They did nothing but mock David and belittle him. Do you remember when he went to the front line uh, at the Battle of Goliath, they treated him as an embarrassment on the battlefield. They wanted nothing to do with David. But now their hearts have been changed and they no longer are against David, but they stand alongside David. This is not just a family reunion, this is a family reconciliation. David turns to God and he brings his family to him to come alongside him. The next people that come to David are all his father's household. Here comes David's father. Here comes David's mother. And you remember the father who once shunned his son, sent him out to the field? He now embraces his son. There's reconciliation between the father and the son. And the mother who was David's role model hugs her son once more. And all the poor pain pours out of David. You can just see the scene, can't you? And when the backslidden return to the Lord, he floods you with love and joy. He gives you what you need. He embraces you and provides you with comfort and support. He's been running, running to man. No man has given him comfort. He runs to the Lord. The Lord brings him comfort. And then he causes people to run to him. And after David runs to God and makes him his refuge, after he seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God not only provides David with a family, but God provides David with fellowship. Um, we read there, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, so he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. See, David was not the only one who was mistreated by King Saul. Saul had made others distressed. Saul had made others bankrupt. Saul had made others discontent. And all these people came to David they looked to him as their champion. They identified with his struggles. They were of the same mind. And they came to him and he became their captain. And it's as if God is saying, you are not alone. It took me a long time to truly learn to make God my refuge. Um, for years I was part of a small and dwindling fellowship where I thought we were the only ones who believed in a literal six-day creation. 
who believe God's covenantal promises for Israel still stood, believed that the gifts of the Spirit were still in operation, believed uh, in a premillennial end times view and that God, that Jesus could come back at any moment. I knew there were some other churches in America, some other people that had written, but I didn't really know any other churches that believed the same thing. And I remember one day in October, pretty much to the day, 14 years ago, walking through the doors of Calvary Chapel, Portsmouth, and finding a whole room and church of people who believed the same things that I believed. Uh, but not only that, a whole family of churches who believed the same things that I believed. And do you know what? It was as if God was saying, you are not alone. You are not alone. And that's exactly what God is saying to David here. You are not alone. And he provides fellowship. And if you make God your refuge, if you, if you turn away from your backslidden state and embrace him, he will provide you with family. He'll provide you with fellowship. He'll make sure you won't stand alone. He'll give you all the love and comfort and support you need. And look what God has done. Look what God has done. Has not God provided a fellowship for all of us here at Calvary Chapel Maidstone? Are we not the dispossessed, the discontented and bankrupt? This is your cave of Adullam. This is the place where you take refuge in God. But let me tell you this, you don't take refuge in a church and you don't look to me as your captain. You take refuge in Jesus Christ and you make him your champion, your captain and your king. Look to Jesus. Alan Redpath said, these are the kind of men who came to David, distressed, bankrupt, dissatisfied. These are the kind of people who come to Christ and they are the only people who come to him for they have recognized their distress, their debt and bankruptcy and are conscious that they are utterly discontented. The, the sheer pressures of these frustrations drives them to the refuge of the blood of Christ that was shed for them. May all of our distresses, trials and difficult circumstances drive us to Lord Jesus Christ that we take refuge in him for he alone will be our refuge and our comfort. Amen. Heavenly Father we thank you for your word. I pray Lord that it might minister life to our souls and health to our spirit as we go forward into this week in Jesus name. Amen.